Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Israel is now in a fifth straight week of protests against the planned uh, change in the judicial system here in Israel. I don't want to go into all the details, but it's a little bit complicated. But basically, the present government uh, wants to make some changes that will take some of the power away from the court system because they feel that the courts have, in the last 20 or 25 years, overstepped their bounds. And in general, in most governments that are run properly, there's a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. And over the last 20 or 30 years, the judicial branch has taken on tremendous power. Uh, Israel has no written constitution, and these changes have come fairly slowly. But right now, the judicial branch of the government is very powerful, in a sense, more powerful than the other branches. And the Likud party and the coalition partners want to institute some new laws that will cut down the power of the judicial branch. I don't want to go into the details, a little bit complicated, but that is what the basic problem is. And now there have been demonstrations for the last five weeks against changing the order, and there are counter demonstrations. Well over 100,000 demonstrators came out for the fifth straight week last Saturday night against the government's proposed reforms in the judicial system. And these the uh, demonstrations came in dozens of locations throughout Israel. The main demonstration took place in Tel Aviv. Uh, other locations for the protests included Haifa, Beersheba, Jerusalem, Saba, and Modim. Not only that, Protests were also held on Saturday in Paris, France, because the prime minister was visiting the, uh, um, the premier of France, and people uh, protested outside the hotel that Prime Minister Benjamin Yahoo was staying in, and uh, also outside, in London, outside the uh, Israeli embassy. So this question of making changes to judicial uh, system is uh, really racking the country. There's nothing like this happened for years. It's been years since Israelis have shown up consistently in the tens of thousands to protest against their own government. Israel has a healthy tradition of protest and in a sense, that's a sign of Israel's robust democracy. The Tel Aviv Saturday night demonstration had been peaceful, but very forceful in their message. Many Israelis are alarmed by the direction of the government, and they insist on being heard. These aren't concerns that can be brushed aside. 
Israelis on both sides of the issues want a healthy debate about their concerns. The desire for a debate is an encouraging sign. Zionists have always debated the future policies of the Jewish people. At the end of the debate, Israel will come out stronger, just as they have during previous times. The saying and yelling that the world is going to end is never a good way to get people's attention for the long term. While yelling like that might attract the head, uh, curious look and, and people attracts attention, people have a natural disposition to believe that things aren't really that bad. Even when they seem bad, we'll begin to tune out these end-of-the-world messages. Raising alarms is ineffective anywhere, especially in a public place, especially in political discussions. A healthy civil society aims to have polite discussion where logical and reasonable points are made to support the approach on how society should operate. The hope is that by having healthy discussions, common ground can be found and nuances can be employed and these divisions among the people can be healed and not enlarged. If you take a look at what happens in the Israeli Knesset, a lot of screaming goes on, which I really find very distasteful. There are issues, many issues, probably most issues, must be discussed, not with yelling. Making irrational and unreasonable points and exaggerating and blowing things out of proportion actually causes society to go backwards. Instead of finding common ground, the divisions are exploited for political promotion and is very unhealthy for society. When people place partisanship ahead of society or imagine that acting as a partisan operator is a society's benefit, civil discussions become impossible and civil discussions are what are needed in a democracy. When every political argument is reinforced with a dose of hysteria about the irreversible damage their opponent's position will cause society, it becomes challenging to address the individual political arguments made, made in the public sphere. And by the way, this is not only happening in the streets. Journalism suffers from the same society-crushing phenomenon of hysteria ruining what was designed, designed to be a vehicle to help advance society. Instead of being a calm voice of reason, the journal, journalists uh, really have, should want to advance society. Instead of being a calm voice, analyzing and giving opinions, news agencies now yell headlines designed to convey the worst possible outcome of any event. They give the impression that the community should be terrified of the next news event. Perusing headlines today, and it's really very bad now in Israel, can give the reader a headache. Headlines scream every day hysterical news that cons consistently turns out to be exaggerated or even completely fabricated. Turning every political position into a hysterical alarm 
really distracts people from an honest analysis debate over the real issues because they make every topic sound like an existential issue. It is impossible to claim that every issue has the potential of to bring the nation or society to an end. That's what these present headlines are doing. When every problem is characterized as a major issue, no problems are taken seriously. People with the potential to honestly analyze the issues and offer solutions will be discouraged or distracted by the partisanship that is fueling the overemphasis of the problem. Once partisanship fuels the alarm, raising discussions, what happens is both sides tend to demonize each other as being opposed to actively listening to what their opponent's point of view is. Once a person vilifies his opponent, he can convince themselves as well as the, that the, the others that the opposing points are so illegitimate that they don't deserve analysis. Listening honestly with an open mind and engaging with nuances are, tend to be forgotten. And what becomes the main important objective is to defeat your opponent's position. Now, a real civil society has discussions and debates with the, the objective being to reach a pathway forward that both sides can agree as a compromise. To remain credible to one's base, politicians can't compromise on an issue they discuss with hysteria. How can someone remain credible if you're saying this is the most important issue in the nation and then turn around and offer it to compromise. People don't forget the original hysteria that was brought to the issue. Any society that suffers from constant bombardment with hysterical message declaring the end of the nation, what happens is that people begin to tune out and they just don't listen anymore. Every issue becomes background noise and the serious issues, and there are serious issues that de deserve national attention, end up not getting the attention they deserve. All these side issues get the headlines, and everybody gets worked up over them. So the truth of the matter is that journalists and politicians and commentators have to take responsibility. They, they have to look past their, their, their own position and the, 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 see what these hysterical, act, this, uh, shocking comments are. Rather, they must discuss the important issues with honest analysis, with nuance, and without vilification of the opposing side. That, that what is what defines a healthy civil society. You can have civil discussions on any issue when there are logical and reasonable points are made to support everyone's position and the community can reach a reasonable conclusion, not with all the yelling and screaming. Our Knesset here in Israel is known around the world as one of the most rankest parliaments in the world where debates extend deep into the night. Now, while some debates regress into name-calling, histrionics, and demonization of opponents, 
for the most part, debates in Israeli society have contributed to a robust democracy. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, over the past few years, Israel's political scene has become more and more partisan. The divides in Israel society have grown, and the serious debates about the future of the country are becoming rare. Israelis are debating some of the most important issues of Israel's existence, and these are serious issues that deserve the, the attention of every Israeli. Regardless of which side of debate one finds himself on, and no matter how precarious the future may seem, it's important that debate happens in a calm and nuanced manner. Make sure that Israel retains its healthy democracy and civil society. They have to return to civil debate. That is what is missing right now. Now I want to switch the topic, something very different. On last week, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to remove Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar, she's from Minnesota, they voted to remove her from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and the vote was approved on party lines, 218 Republicans to 211 Democrats. Now that's very interesting because this particular member of Congress is an obvious anti-Semite. She's part of this group called the Squad, and uh, we follow what's happening in the American Congress as it affects Israel. And what happened was that a Jewish congressman named Max Miller, uh, he submitted a resolution to remove Omar because of past comments against Israel and the fact she makes anti-Semitic marks. Now, in his um, move to his resolution, he said, and I quote, Foreign Affairs Committee members are regarded as credible emissaries of American foreign policy. Their words have significant weight in guiding our relations with other countries and are relied upon by world leaders, most importantly our allies such as Israel. Congresswoman Omar has attempted to undermine the relationship between the United States and Israel, one of the most important strategic alliance we have. She has thus disqualified herself from serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee, unquote. Now, this is a decision that's been really long overdue. This woman, Omar, has repeatedly shown over the last few years that nothing is beneath her in her attempts to vilify not just the state of Israel, but also the Jewish people. As a matter classically, back in 2019, she, she suggested Israel's allies in the U.S. were voted by, motivated by money that they received from APAC, which is the a lobby in Israeli, uh, a, lo a lobby, it's the um, American Israel uh, Political Action Committee, and she claims that the, that the U.S. were motivated money, money that was given to the congressman from APAC rather than by principle. And she said, very infamously, she said 
It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Now, when she said Benjamins, she's, she's making a reference to $100 bills on which a picture of Benjamin Franklin appears. A short time later, the Minnesota congresswoman accused Jews in other American Jews of having dual loyalty. She said, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it's okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. Last summer, she compared Israel to the Taliban. She said, we must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., by Hamas, by Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban, unquote. In other words, she compared Israel to terrorist organization. Now, what makes Omar particularly dangerous is that while she is really a blatant, blatant anti-Semite, she pretends not to be. And that's exactly what she did last week when she defended previous anti-Semitic comments she made and, and claiming that she was not aware that insinuating Jews have uh, wield influence or power, she claimed that was not a form of anti-Semitism. So now the message that Congress sent last week by kicking Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee sends an important message that this type of rhetoric will not be tolerated and there is a price to pay for anti-Semitism. Congress did the right thing. By the way, the school watch initiatives of the Israel American Council reported a rise of uh, 100% of complaints on behalf of Jewish children on anti-Semitism in schools. The uh, Congress showed by removing Omar from the prestigious committee that the United States is really a, a great country. There's no two ways about it. Unfortunately, it had to wait until the Republicans took control of Congress to do that. Years ago, when I was a kid, everybody I knew voted Democratic. They thought that the Democrats had saved the world, that Roosevelt had saved, saved the world. I remember hearing that as a kid. He, as a matter of fact, I remember being surprised that there was a senator from New York, Jacob Javits, who was a Republican. I, I remember, as a kid, you, you know, kids are impressionable. And I, I remember everybody I knew was a Democrat, and the idea of a Jew being a Republican sort of, sort of ran, ran against the grain. But over the years, the Democratic Party has really changed quite a bit, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years. And it's, it's not the same Democratic Party it was when I was a kid. For that matter, the Republican Party is also not the same. <clears throat> so it's very good that now that the Democrats have taken control of the House of Representatives, that they have removed an obvious anti-Semite from the Foreign Affairs Committee. I think that is really an important move. It speaks well of the United States. And hopefully people who are outspoken anti-Semites, even in our congressmen, uh, they have learned their lesson. That, that Israel and America are very close allies. And it's not a one-way street. 
United States gives a lot of things to Israel. Israel provides a lot of things to the United States. As a matter of fact, I know from my personal experience, many times we get um, um, uh, equipment from the United States, we improve it here in Israel, and then we give it back to the United States with the improvements. So it's a two-way street. The last thing we need is anti-Semites in Congress. I'll be back after the break. Howdy, Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say a few things about the demographics in Israel, and particularly the Israeli family. In recent years, these things have changed that are weakening the social and cultural roles of the family. Family patterns are becoming more diverse. What do I mean by that? First of all, according to the information available, Israelis marry later today than they used to. In the past five decades, the Jewish median age at marriage increased from 24 years of age to 27 for men and from 21 years to 25 for women. That's Jewish Israelis. Muslim citizens are following the same thing. Their respective ages grew from 24 to 26 among men and from 19 to 22 years of age among women. So the differences between Jews and non-Jews here in Israel have contracted, as have the disparities between men and women. So these new family patterns are strongly influenced by general developments in modern society that may operate at different intensities among Jews and non-Jews and within each group according to individual levels of religiousness. These developments include, among other things, a growing tendency to higher education and pursuit of professional career. This weakens social pressure to marry young it erodes the economic wealth of young men and women. The modern people are not getting married, but they're actually living arrangements outside of formal marriage. And there's expanded use of contraceptives and prolongation of women's fertile period. Also, a growing share of Israelis choose not to marry at all. Back in 1970, only 3% of Jewish men in their late 40s never married. Today, this is true for 13%, 3% to 13%, which is a fourfold increase. Among Jewish women, they went from 2% who didn't get married to 11%, which is five times greater. And although these people may eventually find partners without marriage, their new families are unlikely to have their own biological children. So what's happening is, here in Israel, is family stability is losing ground. The divorce rate is on the rise. 
from 5% to 12% among Jews in the past 50 years, which is two and a half times higher now than it was then. If in the past the family rested on three strong pillars, religious values, economic considerations, and emotional support, what's happened is that the intensification of secularism and women's aspiration to earn an independent living have caused much of their significance to weaken couples' motivation to preserve their relationship in the long run. So, the postponement of the age of marriage, the increase in the rate of never-married people, and the accelerating tendency to divorce have not affected Jewish fertility. It's interesting. Jewish women in Israel have three children on average, exceeding the norm in other developed countries, and equally important, far beyond the intergenerational replacement level, this ensures population growth and young, and there will be young people around. I think you need um, 2.1 children per couple to maintain the same level of population, and the Jews are uh, above that. They're, we're talking three children per couple. So the while the average fertility rate among Jews has always been around three children, that of non-Jews was once much higher. It used to, among Christian women, it was five children. Among Druze women, it was seven. And among Muslims, it was nine children. But these rates have come down. Non-Jewish women converged to the fertility levels of their Jewish counterparts. And Christian and Druze women exhibit even lower fertility at two children. Nevertheless, because of the high fertility in the past, the non-Jewish population has a young age structure and accordingly a large absolute number of young families and children. In other words, those communities in Israel outside the Jews have a large, um, large number of young fa families. Now, interestingly enough, fertility among Jews themselves very varies very significantly according to religious affiliation. Secular women have about two children. Traditional women have nearly three. Religious women have four. And ultra-Orthodox, or what they call Haredi, have as many, as many as seven on the average. Even if a small proportion of children raised in religious and ultra-Orthodox family leave these lifestyles as they grow up, there's substantial difference, difference between the ultra-Orthodox and the secular sect remain in effect and are paramount in the changing identity portrait of the Jewish population. So, there are gender gaps in educational and economic attainments. They've, they've narrowed. In education, women have gained an advantage. Today, women outnumber men in eligibility for a matriculation certificate in high school, meeting the threshold requirements for university admissions, and holding a post-secondary or academic diploma. In other words, the number of women in academia has grown significantly more than the amount of men. So even if the employment rate of men is higher than that of women, the past two decades have witnessed a narrowing of the gaps by half. 
Gender differences in income show a similar trend. In view of these observations, it comes as no surprise that women's satisfaction with their wages has decreased. Women want to earn more. They feel that their educational achievements are not properly channeled to financial rewards. This is, this is very fascinating. There are more and more women in academia, more and more women in the business world, and as a result, they want their salaries to be comparable to those of men. And the, the, this discrimination in the labor market can be corrected by women's political power, which has recently been on the increase. For example, the share of women in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, has grown from around 7% at the turn of the 21st century to 21st, 25% in the current Knesset. If women members of the Knesset seek gender equality as a common goal, despite their party affiliation, they're going to cooperate with each other and move with the position of women ahead. So put it this way, the women in Israel are, over the last 20 to 30 years have moved up in all the professions and now, and, and including in the Knesset, and therefore they want to have, their, they want their rights. They want to be treated the same as men when it comes to salary. And that's what's, uh, that's what's happening now in Israel. Uh, I found these statistics uh, the other day, and I thought I'd share them with the listeners, because it's interesting that in Israel, uh, to, to uh, put, a, uh, put a line under it, in Israel, women, the position of women professionally has increased tremendously, and, and they want very much to have equality with men, and I think they're going to achieve it. I don't think there's any two ways about it. Now I want to change the subject and talk about uh, the uh, way the international community looks at Israel since 1967. Since 1967, the, uh, there's a lot of pressure on the Israeli side to give up what they call its occupation of the West Bank. Back in 1948, the uh, United Nations decided to split Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. And of course, the Arabs didn't uh, uh, accept that. They attacked Israel. Israel won the war. And, uh, and then in 1967, Israel took over that part that was held by Jordan since 1948. In all that time, the, uh, the, the UN looks upon Israel's occupation of these areas as something uh, temporary. But throughout the years since the 1967 war, the Palestinians have established a determined international campaign against Israel, especially in the United Nations, and the hope the world would coerce Israel into making concessions that cannot be achieved through negotiations. In the view of the Palestinians, 
gathering a majority of votes or any initiative is what they want to do. In their view, this is an effective battlefield, the UN. On the other hand, through the institutions of government and the status of the Israeli High Court of Justice, Israel has proven that it is democratic and a stable state of law. Now, the UN General Assembly resolution of December 30th is not just another uh, resolution to be disregarded. The legal opinion that the assembly, the General Assembly requested from the International Court of Justice deals with the legality of the Israeli occupation in the West Bank and its legal consequences on the policy of member states toward Israel. So what happened is resolution in the UN upgrades the ongoing uh, Palestinian effort and includes agreed language that will be incorporated by definition in future UN resolutions. In other words, Pal the Palestinian state, which does not exist, has representatives in the UN, the United Nations, and they have pushed through resolutions that are anti-Israel. Now, the, the, in the past, the Palestinians used all kinds of international legal institutions to attack Israel. Uh, they, uh, a lot of Palestinian initiative in international organizations that, was against, that are against Israel. For example, Israel started building a wall to, so to protect Israelis from terrorism, and the UN said that, and I quote, we determined that the construction of the wall established the fact in the territory that may be final and permanent, the actual result will be the annexation of territories by Israel. In other words, Israel put up a wall to protect its citizens, and now the UN is saying that the Israel is using the wall to uh, to establish what the real boundaries will be if there ever is a Palestinian state. The the, the uh, in 2004, the court, the international court, examined the issue of defense, but now it examines the entire subject of the occupation and the settlements, whether they're legal and their impact on this place called Palestine, which doesn't exist. Although the UN recognizes Palestine, and they have a seat in the UN. So it's a very complicated situation. The uh, Israel clarified that defense is temporary and claimed the right to self-defense against terrorism. So they're... Uh, this is a really interesting problem we have with the United Nations. Now, there is no doubt, no doubt at all, that the issue of the Israeli occupation of these territories that were taken over in 1967 and the control of the other people and its influence on Israeli society are very weighty issues that require a thorough discussion in Israeli society as a whole. Israel cannot abandon its interest in the international arena in favor of internal political consideration 
which is reflected in some of the new coalition agreements. The truth of the matter is that the government in Israel, the leadership in Israel, must understand, must understand the the, the situation has changed and the the transfer of the conflict with the Palestinians to the legal arena is a dangerous development. It could lead to criminalization of Israelis, damage to our economy, and create real political damage. And, uh, and you know, we share values with the United States, but they may be in danger. We have to understand that in a new political reality, the safety net that the U.S. has deployed for Israel at the U.N. Might, should no longer be taken for granted. The, uh, if we want to ensure the continuation of an American veto when it's required in the U.N., uh, particularly in the Security Council, we have to take the position of the Americans into account. At the end of the uh, Obama administration, the Americans did not use their veto uh, against an anti-Israeli resolution in the UN, and that was really shameful. Now, the question is, how do we deal with these things? The future of the territories uh, will be determined according to the most people in future negotiations. But however, there's no specific date for this to happen. And also the Palestinian Authority and its present form may be overthrown in, in the uh, what's called the West Bank, just, it was, just as it was overthrown in Gaza by a terrorist organization. So we have to be aware of the consequences that could have a significant impact on Israel. And uh, we pay a heavy price for, for the fact that we control these Palestinians, but we have no choice. There is no one to give it over to safely to, and that we would know that they'd live in peace with us. Even if you're uh, in favor of giving up land for peace, the expression land for peace has meaning. Land for peace can only happen if there is a Palestinian authority of some type that's willing to live in peace with Israel. Right now, that authority does not exist. And therefore, Israel has to hold on to the territories for our own safety. Every day, every night, the Israeli army is active in what's called the West Bank to catch and uh, capture uh, terrorists. Every night, this is an ongoing thing. Uh, I have a grandson who uh, is called in uh, quite often during the course of the year, even uh, even for one night or for two nights, to pull terrorists out of their homes so that we remain safe here in Israel. So the, the international community looks at us in a certain way, and they want us to behave a certain way, but we can't live up to anything that they believe in as long as the uh, territories 
are controlled by a terrorist organization. It is a very unhealthy situation. There's two way, no two ways about it, but it is a reality. The Palestinian Authority is a terror organization that can't not even control its own terrorists. So obviously we can't give up that land for the foreseeable future. There's no one to give it to safely. So all this yelling around the world about Israel being an occupier, it's this occupation that keeps us safe. Even if we were eventually to give up part of that land, it would only be to a to a sensible, organized Palestinian government that wants to live in peace with Israel. The chances of that happening are way over the horizon, unfortunately. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to talk about something that gets big headlines here in Israel, but I'm afraid it doesn't get much mentioned in other countries. I'm talking about Palestinian terrorism. We send soldiers into the Palestinian areas all the time to prevent terrorism. Otherwise, we would be live in a state of terror all the time. And what they do in the Palestinian Authority, which is really shows what they really believe in, they describe what they call social security payments, which are handed out monthly as rewards to Palestinians and their families who carry out terror attacks against Israeli civilians and soldiers. Palestinian Authority gets money from all over, including from the United States. Most of the money is skimmed off the top by the leadership, who build themselves huge homes and palaces. doesn't get down to the people. The only way the people really get any benefit if they have a terrorist in their family gets killed or gets captured by the Israelis, and then the family gets awarded. Fatah, the terrorist organization, back in 1964, that far, that long ago, Fatah established a Palestinian Mujahideen and Martyrs Fund to support widows and orphans of what Palestinians, what they call fedayin, which, which is translated into English as either freedom fighters or militants or guerrillas. Back in 1971, it was replaced by something called the Society for the Care of Palestinian Martyrs and Prisoners, to include any military martyrs who died of natural causes while on active service. 
It also meant that any average Palestinian killed during any encounter with Israeli security forces was given a one-time payment. Palestinian law, they have law, their law mandates that 7% of the annual Palestinian Authority budget be allocated to the Martyrs Fund. In other words, it's pay for slay. It's designed to incentivize Palestinians to choose the path of terrorism because their families are going to get money. The truth of the matter is that the Palestinian Authority spends more money on pay-for-slate stipends than on Palestinian health care. And a terrorist released from prison in Israel receives lifelong economic and employment security. In other words, it pays to be a terrorist, and if you're killed, your, your family is supported. The Israeli Defense and Security Forum has reported that the Palestinian Authority's pay-for-slave policy makes it five times more profitable, more profitable to become a convicted terrorist than to become a teacher. They also noted that the income a Palestinian terrorist who serves a life sentence in prison receives a salary that is four times higher than the average Palestinian income and eight times higher than the Palestinian minimum wage. These pay-for-slave payments became routine during the Second Intifada, which was back between the year 2000 and 2005, when Palestinians hit Israel with a wave of terror attacks that included suicide bombings, gunfire, stone throwing, and rocket attacks. In the year 2016, the Palestinian Authority spent about $303 million on pay-for-slave stipends distributed to 35,000 families, including the families of suicide bombers. The international community has tried to pressure the Palestinian Authority to stop, stop terror stipends. The Americans passed what's called the Taylor Force Act, named after an American who happened to be in Israel who was killed by an Arab terrorist. But the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, has a history of ignoring global demands and instead has increased the amount allotted to these stipends. Israeli non-government organizations, NGOs, including one called the Palestinian Media Watch, reported that Palestinian authorities spent no less than $271 million paying terrorists in 2021. $271 million. About $193 million was spent on terrorist imprisons and released terrorists, and another $78 million were paid to wounded terrorists and the families of dead terrorists. 
The Palestinian Authority has no intention of stopping these pay-for-slate stipends. In a recent interview on the Israeli radio, Israeli television, the mayor of Jenin, a Palestinian city, stated that the Palestinian Authority will not stop funding the families of our martyrs, even if we are down to the last penny. Every move Israel takes against the prisoners will be met with our response. If Israel pushes us to extremes, we'll come back to haunt it, unquote. After discovering where the pay-for-slave money goes, several countries, including the United States, Netherlands, Australia, and Germany, have cut direct payments to the Palestinian Authority. However, just last week, the European Union announced that it has decided to increase funding to the Palestinian Authority to the tune of 296 million euros. This is blood money that will inevitably go toward the pockets of terrorists and their families. Every time a terrorist murders Israelis, we repeatedly see celebrations erupt in Gaza and the West Bank. This should come as no surprise when a society financially rewards violence and indoctrinates their children in schools to become martyrs. Whatever your opinion is about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, anyone with a rational mind can understand this. A society that financially incentivizes and glorifies terrorism is not interested in peace or any resolution to the conflict. This is the truth, <coughs> and you can tell by the payments what they really feel about peace with Israel. The bottom line is you cannot make peace with a society that pays people to kill Jews. That's the bottom line. All the heads of the Palestinian Authority have become wealthy with the money they've gotten from Europe and from the United States. They don't worry about the little man in the street and the Palestinian Authority. The very fact that they reward murderers and their families show that for the foreseeable future, there's absolutely no chance of peace with the Palestinians. It's unfortunate, but it's true. You judge people by their actions. And the actions of the leaders of the Palestinian Authority show that they are simply not interested in peace with Israel. It's unfortunate, but it's true, and we have to live and deal with this reality. Time is often of the essence when confronting terrorism. In times of conflict and crisis, elected officials and commanders should not need to ask the Attorney General of Israel for a prior approval for every response to terrorism Certainly not those counterterrorism responses that have already been litigated or legislated are not life-threatening. 
commanders and elected leaders to be able to implement measures based on basic guidelines. In other words, as long as the Palestinians are terrorists, we have to deal with it, but we have to have rules established on how to deal with terrorism. By the way, according to the um, uh, headlines earlier this week, Israeli uh, soldiers invaded the uh, refugee camp near Jenin uh, to pick up terrorists. There was a battle there and five terrorists were killed. It's interesting, by the way, I, years ago when I just still did uh, military duty as a reservist, I spent time riding through those uh, refugee camps, particularly in Jenin, and it's very, it makes one really feel nervous when you see those faces of those people looking at you with kill, killer in their instinct in their eyes. But these are the reality, this is the reality on the ground. So expelling facilitators from within the terrorist family is assessed to help prevent future attacks. Hopefully that's, they, they kick people out because we're afraid of uh, the families, put it this way, the families have to know that if one of their members uh, is a terrorist, then they themselves will suffer. The uh, It makes the terrorist organization's objectives harder to achieve. Recruiting terrorists to Hamas and the PLO is harder when the recruits know their supporting family may benefit from paychecks, but they'll also pay a significant price for their involvement in terrorism. In other words, on one hand, you become a terrorist and you know your family is going to get money from the Palestinian Authority. On the other hand, there's a good possibility that the Israeli army will come and destroy your house. They, they're caught in that uh, conflict. Not every countermeasure needs to be taken immediately after an attack, but some are most effective when they, when they are taken immediately. It's up to security officials to assess the effectiveness and timing of measures, and the elected officials' role is to authorize these actions or to disallow them. Palestinian terrorists should know there's a high probability that any murderous attack will result in the attacker's loss of life, the destruction of his home, and the expulsion of his family who supports him. Israel has to be proactive and preemptive. It needs to take non-life-threatening action like house demolitions and deportations immediately after an attack. This happened recently that it was an attack on a Jerusalem synagogue Five people were killed, and the army went in and destroyed the terrorist home. That home that housed the terrorists who murdered seven Israelis in Neve Yaakov two weeks ago should be demolished, and his father, who praised the slaughter and took credit for educating his son to act in such a murderous manner, he should be deported. Seven families sat shiva in mourning their murdered loved ones. And the the father of the killer is bragging and how what his about what his son 
and inciting others to follow in son's footsteps. In what world can this be considered reasonable? In his final judgment, former Chief Justice Aram Barak reiterated that at times, democracy fights with one hand tied behind its back. Despite that, democracy has the upper hand since preserving the rule of law and to the recognition of individual liberties constitute important components of security. At the end of the day, democracy strengthens its spirit and allows democracy to overcome difficulties. This, all this is true. This is what the former, former Chief Justice Barack said, but his reflection may have merit, but Israel should not be bound to fight with two hands tied behind its back. Legal reform can improve counterterrorism effectiveness. We are not fighting against an organized army. We are fighting against terrorism, which can happen anytime, any day, anywhere. And it's, a, it's not a, an open battle like a war. And, we're, and we have to be effective, not only in terms of what we do, uh, our military does and what our police do, but also our legal system has to be such that allows us to defend ourselves against terrorism. And it's an unfortunate reality, but it's in a, a reality that's going to continue for a long time. As long as children, starting at the age of four or five in the Palestinian Authority, are taught in school that Jews have no right to life and the state of Israel has no right to exist, we're going to have this problem for beyond what, what you could call the foreseeable future. There is no end in sight for our struggle against terrorism and we have to allow our police and military, we have to allow them the means to fight this kind of thing. It's unfortunate, but it is a reality on the ground. I myself have spent many hours in uh, uh, counterterrorism. Uh, when I served uh, years ago, when I served in the military, the uh, we spent many hours traveling through uh, refugee camps and uh, on uh, roadblocks. I remember, by the way, I might have mentioned this in the past. We were instructed that if a um, you're standing at a roadblock and a Palestinian car arrives, and there's a somebody look somebody official looking in the back seat, you cannot ask him. For identification, you can only ask the driver, because the, the guy in the back seat might be the head of a village or the head of a clan, and it would be insulting to him to ask him for his identification. So it, it's interesting how you you want to uh, make sure there's no terrorism, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you don't insult the people who could indeed be the leaders of the terrorists. A car drives up with a driver and a, an official-looking person sitting in the back seat. You can only ask the driver for his identity 
and you can ask the driver to show the, uh, you the identity card of the guy in the back seat. You cannot ask that guy himself. That would be insulting. So it's very interesting how we got instructions, which I assume are still applicable, that you have to treat the uh, Palestinian leadership with a certain amount of respect. At the same time, you have to make sure that we are safe. So uh, I, I, from many hours of standing at these uh, roadblocks, you learn how to behave in such a manner that you don't insult somebody who might turn out to be fostering and patronizing terrorism. But these are, these are the rules of the game, strange as they are. And I always found that rather amusing. Uh, I guess amusing, I, I say that in a, in a sort of a uh, funny way, because uh, we treated the, at the roadblocks, we, we, we treated the Palestinians properly in a, in a formal way, not to insult them, but at the same time, we had to make sure that whoever was passing through a roadblock was not a danger to Israel or to his, his, his individual Israelis. It's a tough situation, one that we have to live with, but it, I don't think in the foreseeable future, it's a situation that we're going to have to continue to deal with. I'll be back after the break. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom, I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home. Every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. At the beginning of this week, there was a very large earthquake in Turkey and the northern part of Syria, and we actually felt the edges of it here in Israel. Now, what's interesting is Israel was one of the first nations to offer the Turkey and Syria aid and assistance following this terrible earthquake on Monday. This is interesting because Syria is an enemy state, but we indeed are helping those people. According to the headlines in this morning's paper, Thursday morning, there were uh, more than 7,000 people killed in that earthquake. So we can be proud that Israel is among the first to lend a helping hand when disasters occur around the world, especially in this region. Interestingly enough, in one of the newspapers reported that one of the um, Israeli planes that landed with people to help, that landed in an airport, was very close to a plane that came from Iran. So the Iranians are also helping the uh, victims of this earthquake. An Israeli search and rescue team comprised about 150 experienced military officers, professionals, and experts. 
They arrived in the Turkish city of Adana on Tuesday. And the government said the IDF search and rescue team is fully committed to doing everything in its power to help save lives and provide support to those in need. As a matter of fact, our president, Yitzhak Herzog, called the Turkish president, Erdogan, to express condolences over the loss of so many lives. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said he had instructed all authorities to provide medical and rescue assistance to Turkey, adding that Israel is prepared to extend its aid to Syrian victims as well. So Israel is, that is a very admirable thing to do. But however, it was pointed out, as admirable as that outreach is, a big question in the aftermath of this disaster is whether we here in Israel are ready for an earthquake. What happened now is that Netanyahu ordered the National Security Council Director, Tzachi Negbi to assess Israel's preparedness, and what will happen is that Hanegbi will convene a discussion at the earliest opportunity with the participation of all government ministries, according to a statement from the Prime Minister's office. So, they, in the meantime, another uh, an urgent meeting was held uh, to view, review the country's readiness for an earthquake. We have to fortify the country against a devastating earthquake. The disaster in Turkey and Syria should turn on a bright warning light to the government of Israel and the local authorities. The uh, the uh, it, it's interesting. The uh, when studying for awaiting for a commission of inquiry after a disaster, the government should act on pre-disaster preparedness. Now, the National Emergency Authority estimated there are 80,000 dwellings in Israel, 80,000, that are at high risk of earthquake hits. These are buildings built before regulations to fortify against quakes became required back in the 1980s. There are a lot of old buildings here in Israel. The... Um, the official reports by the state controller and emergency services have predicted there could be hundreds killed and thousands wounded if a powerful earthquake struck here. According to the reports, more than 28,000 homes could be seriously damaged and 170,000 people could be left homeless if a quake devastated communities like Tiberias and Beit Shan in the north which are situated on this seismically active Great Rift Valley. If you look at a map of Israel, the the border between uh, Israel and Jordan, it's a great rift. Uh, we know if, if, if you're heading east, starting at the uh, Tel Aviv area, you, you, the, first you have the um, coastal area, which is flat. Then you have mountains. And then it deep it, it delves deeply into a, uh, a uh, what's called the Great Rift Valley. For example, they're part they're the um, the lowest place on Earth. 
is down near the Dead Sea. The consensus among experts is that Israel is not preferred for an, eighth, or an earthquake, which is only a matter of time, according to the expert. Historically, interestingly enough, Israel has experienced severe earthquakes about once in a century. The last big one, called the Jericho earthquake, caused devastating damage and the loss of many lives back in 1927. It's almost 100 years ago. Well, the strongest quake ever measured in Israel with a magnitude of 7.3 occurred in 1995, 100 kilometers south of Eilat. That's next to the Sinai Desert. Now, in February of last year, the Geological Survey of Israel is un, un, unveiled a system using cutting-edge technology capable of sensing the first signs of a quake. <coughs> this will allow Home Front Command to send out an alert within 10 seconds. Now, the, the name of it's called T-R-U-A-A. That's the name of the system. And uh, it's interesting. If you read it, T-R-U-A-A, -A, it says Terua. Now, the name is purposely reminiscent of the chauffeur's staccato rings that serve as a wake-up call for Rosh Hashanah. So the warning system of the Illogical Survey of Israel is Teruah. So we have to not wait for Teruah to sound. The earthquakes that occurred in Turkey and Syria this week should be a wake-up call for the responsible authorities to take measures to minimize potential casualties in a future earthquake in Israel. It's a real possibility. Now I want to change the subject and talk about something that is causing a lot, a lot of tumult in Israel. Over the course of a number of years, under the, um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Barak, who's now retired, the Supreme Court um, pushed through a number of laws that gave the Supreme Court itself a tremendous amount of power, including nullifying laws passed by the Knesset. And one of the major problems with that is, or two of the major problems, is that the law, the basic laws were passed with a very small um, number of Knesset members voting. There were 120 members of the Knesset, and the people involved when these basic laws were passed were less than, I think, about 50, less than half the Knesset. And uh, that's one problem. The second problem is that the laws give tremendous power to the Supreme Court, which is not an elected body. The Supreme Court more or less elects itself. There's a committee that uh, chooses who the members of the court are going to be, and it includes a number of people, judges, who already are on the court. Most Israelis today acknowledge the need for some kind of reform of the court. 
the uh, because they really are, are um, want to take exception to what people consider to be in judicial overreach. Overreach. Genuinely conservative leadership committed to conserving institutions, legitimacy, and values and sanity would understand that pushing too many fundamental changes too quickly has a tendency to backfire. The, the changes then which took place, in which the court got so much power, took place over a number of years, so it was hardly noticed, actually. And now with the new government of Israel, they want to uh, uh, do away with those changes. Trouble is that what they're trying to do now, they're trying to do quickly. And that is a problem. Thoughtful strategic governance would distinguish between policies which change from coalition to coalition. Power arrangements which should be modified carefully and basic rights which are inherent and enduring, they have to be preserved and if any changes are made, they must be made slowly. People who are responsible uh, understand that democratic legislation involves back and forth, ceding some concessions to opponents to maintain peace. The rush to reform is blurring it all, and it's really upsetting everybody. The problem with the, the, what's happening now with the new government, and they want to make reforms, they're trying to make them too quickly. So the uh, th that's very important. It, I, I believe, personally, that changes are in order. There should be changes, but not rushed. There, there should be uh, politicians and intellectuals and rabbis and business leaders and even celebrities who help to calm down and wise up, work together to take our common problems. The, uh, and somebody has pointed out that fortunately the Israeli street, the man in the street, is far more reasonable than, than the, the, uh, the liberals. The latest Israeli Democracy Institute poll shows that 43% disliking the proposed judicial overhaul and 31% supporting it. But most important, 64% desire what they call dialogue between the different political camps and an attempt to reach compromise. So this is a silent majority who want negotiation and conciliation. The, uh, the, uh, obviously, I think at least, the majority consistently supports the Supreme Court's power to override Knesset laws. On the other hand, uh, the, the, what, the, what is being proposed now is the, is that the, uh, the, Knesset itself can override a court decision by 61 votes. Now, the Knesset has 120 members, and what they're saying is that 61 members vote to override a Supreme Court decision, that's enough to override it. 
Now, the fact that a Supreme Court decision could be overridden, I think that's quite possible, but not with a a, uh, a majority of only one. These these things are too serious, and they have to be done in a way that um, that re- that keeps the government stable. The it's 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 a serious problem. Now there obviously in any government of the kind that Israel has, or any government in any democratic country, the there are policies that change from one coalition to another. But and so any changes should really be done carefully, and basic rights, as I said, which are inherent and enduring, must be preserved. The you you must learn in a democracy to compromise, because if you're the party in power, and you're unable to compromise, when you lose power, those who are opposed to you who then have power are not going to compromise either. Democracy is based, as I understand it, on compromise. You can't always get what you want. So you you have to understand that the um, Israel is a strong country, and we have enemies that we have to worry about. The uh, when the demonstrators are 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 uh, are, for example, going into the streets uh, every Saturday night. It's right here in my neighborhood. I live not far from where the president of Israel lives. These people are, are going into the streets and making noise, and I really question how many of these protesters have actually seen the changes or understood the changes that the present government wants to make in some of the basic laws. So when when demonstrators are uh, are carrying on, the time has come to stop step back and look carefully at what's happening. Israel cannot afford to be splintered by a prolonged, ugly fight about democracy. We have problems that have to resolve that are important, like the economy, we have to fight terrorism, we have to fight crime, we have to make sure that Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon which would be aimed at us. So, it, it very, we, we have to slow things down. And the person who's trying to do this, um, and he should be respected, more power to him, is the President Herzog. He, he respects the, the silent majority. They get, we have to see the changes are made slowly, safely, and in a manner that the public can accept it. In other words, things have to be done in the long term, as I see it, but rather than just uh, mugging the court and short-circuiting democracy with quick and and costly short-lived wins, which could be arrested and and stopped by the next coalition. Israel lives by coalition governments. No party has ever gained a majority in the Knesset. Even the Mapai, the original party that ran the country until 1977, 
always had to form a coalition and make compromises. And this is a very important issue. And those who are responsible or trying to make the change should be open-minded enough to and, and talk to those who disagree with what's happening. The person who chairs the Senate, uh, the Knesset, Constitution Law and Justice Committee is a member of Knesset named Simcha Rothman. He belongs to the National Religious Party, and he must stop pointing to the harshest critics who reject dialogue or impose preconditions on negotiations. To avoid dialogue would be a very bad mistake. Ignoring the middle, the people who want change, Slowly, the and to pay attention to those who make the most noise, search the responsibility to govern responsibly. Now, truly, we know now the right won the election. This is the first time Israel has had a government made of a right-wing party and a religious party. And the right has won the judicial reform argument. So most Israelis today acknowledge the need for some court reform because of judicial overreach, but it's got to be done in a conservative way. It can't be pushed down the throat of the populace, and that's what the Likud is trying to do now. So it is a time of crisis, internal crisis here in Israel, and hopefully those responsible who are trying to make the change will act in such a way that the people will go along with it. The very fact that the opposition parties are threatening all kinds of things. Really, you look in the paper every day to see what they're threatening, it's really scary. So what we need is responsible leadership to make responsible, gradual changes. Thanks for listening. Till next time, Jay Shapiro signing off. Take care of yourself. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at israelnewstalkradio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India. And I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. 
Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 